Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Hey, good morning, Southbridge family. It is great to gather together, even as we are shifted and gathered all around our city, uh, as we pull people in from uh, North Carolina, around the country, even around the world. We've had some of our missionaries check in and it is great to be able to be together, to worship together. Thank you to Seth and our worship team for just starting us and setting the pace so well as we gather and as we worship and as we now open the Word of God together. I invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me uh, into the New Testament book of Luke chapter 19. Uh, today is Palm Sunday and as we enter this Easter season, today begins what we know as Holy Week. It's the last physical week of Jesus' life on earth and, and it's the week that leads us up to Easter. And uh, I don't know about you, but this is definitely the most unique Easter that I've ever experienced. Um, and I think that's true with all of us uh, as we gather um, to be in such a unique situation of, of lockdown and locked in. And so even as you gather as a family, uh, we just want you to participate together. Uh, wherever you are, just right off on the side of the screen, there's a comment section. We encourage you to chat along with us right there. Let us know that you're there. If you have questions, thoughts, uh, we want to be able to interact with you. So check in there with us. There's some observations as we look at this story, a very familiar passage of Jesus as he enters the city of Jerusalem, uh, what we refer to as the triumphal entry, a very traditional passage to look at on this Palm Sunday. Um, and as we do, there's some, there's some observations th that I want to share with us from this passage. As we think about our culture, uh, we live in a very fearful time, a very uncertain time, and people are just really not sure what to do. There's probably more questions than answers. But as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 19, I want to draw out some observations that I think are very fitting for this specific point in time. The setting here is Jerusalem, it's Passover season. It's the highlight of the Jewish year, and, and over the next several days, the population of that city is gonna triple as people flood to that area. It was into this unique situation that Jesus would allow his followers to do something that he's never allowed them to do up to this point, and, and that was simply to give a public demonstration um, in his honor, to kind of celebrate him. This would knowingly set into place a series of events that would ultimately lead then to Jesus' arrest, his trial, his ridicule, his persecution, his crucifixion on a cross, and then ultimately to his resurrection. This story in the Bible of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem on a donkey is referred to as the triumphal entry. It's found in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and yet when you look at that word triumphal, it's literally defined as pertaining to celebrating or commemorating a triumph or a victory. And so that kind of begs the question, right? What was Jesus' triumph or victory up to this point? You know, sure, he had a large following of people. They were following him because of the miracles that he had done. Uh, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead and a number of those people were still following him as he was heading into the city. Some acknowledged him as the Messiah that they were anticipating. Others were just intrigued by who he was. Um, some thought that he was the warrior. He was coming to liberate the people. Others were somewhat annoyed by him. 
The Romans, they were on guard. They were a little bit hesitant and, and living in fear that some zealot may come and cause a big uprising and attempt to potentially assassinate or take the life of one of their leaders. And so a lot of people were intrigued with this man named Jesus. And it was very common at that point in, in time in biblical history for kings or royalty to arrive in a city riding on a donkey because a donkey represented a symbol of peace. So for Jesus, here he is, he's arriving as the Prince of Peace. And the significance of this act, that this was a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. While the uniqueness of this little parade entry was not that of a typical victorious general uh, who was returning from battle, the Romans were very familiar with that, the people were familiar with that, that a general would come back from war and, and uh, they would have this parade of people and the bounty that they would bring back from war. But instead, here's this diverse group of people, some wondering what was going on, others perhaps ridiculing Jesus and the crowds and others simply disregarded the event altogether. But the emphasis of the text is that the crowd, hearing that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. And they threw palm branches, which again was a symbol of peace. And they would throw the palm branches down and they began to sing praise to him. And they began to shout and cry out, quoting, as Pastor Seth mentioned just a bit ago from Psalm 118, they, they began to just cry out and sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. A Hebrew expression meaning to save. So how appropriate for the people at this point in time as Jesus was arriving to make this kind of a declaration the people were looking for someone to free them. They wanted to be liberated from bondage. They were hoping Jesus was going to fight that battle for them, but instead he came not to fight a physical battle or a political war, but a spiritual one, one that only he could win, one of which he could only come out as the victor. And he was about to be triumphant in a battle that no one expected. He would conquer sin and death on our behalf. He would be victorious over the penalty of sin to give us life eternal. He would go through the events of the coming week that we refer to as Holy Week, right? The week leading up to Easter with all of its ridicule, all of its persecution, all of its struggles. He'd go through the trials. He'd maintain this incredible posture of being the Prince of Peace. He would win a battle without a harsh word. He would win that battle without uh, fighting back, with, without ever raising a fist or raising a sword. And so as Jesus enters triumphantly because he came to fight a battle that we couldn't win, to win a war that we could never hope to win over sin, he came to conquer death on our behalf and to give us victorious new life through his shed blood on the cross. So that's why this was a triumphant entry. I, I believe that our culture now, perhaps more than ever, needs this peace. They need the Prince of Peace. We need the Prince of Peace. And the entire world is focused on a, on a single enemy. Do you realize that? I mean, all around our world, Everybody is focused on this one enemy, this virus that is a, attacking people and it's totally disrupted our lives. And, and now more than ever, we need this Prince of Peace. Yet, we are greatly disrupted. 
We're greatly troubled. There's confusion, there's anger, there's fear. And the world probably now has more questions than answers. And in comes Jesus. So in this season that has somewhat turned our lives upside down, it seems more important than ever to, to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. It was Jesus who came, and, and He was not what people expected. As we're looking for answers and we're looking for hope and people are struggling, Jesus is probably not what they're looking for. He, he's the unexpected answer to every question. See, He came and He broke every expectation the Jewish people had about who their Messiah would be. He looked more like a servant than a king. He called poor fishermen instead of men of great power and authority to be His followers and His disciples. Rather than assuming an earthly throne, He died a shameful death on a cross. He stunned even those closest to Him by rising from the dead and claiming victory over the grave. So this morning as we look at this, I want to share with you four what I think are simple yet profound observations of this narrative in Luke chapter 19. First, I want to make this observation. Jesus grieved for the people. Look with me at chapter 19 of the book of Luke and look at verse 41 and 42. It says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You see, if we're going to be a reflection of the Prince of Peace, we need to hurt for lost people. See, biblical peace, when we think about biblical peace, is only experienced in the midst of pressure, in the midst of difficulty, and in the midst of uncertainty. That's where we experience biblical peace. And as we walk faithfully through difficult times with Jesus Christ, we bring peace in the midst of pain and uncertainty. Do, do you weep? For lost people? Do you weep for your city, for your neighborhood, for your family, for your friends, for your co-workers? You see, this is a very uncertain time. It, it's a heavy time. It is a difficult time for sure. And so I just ask, is your heart heavy for those whose lives are, are affected? Those greatly affected, perhaps, by the virus? For those who have lost loved ones, you see, many of us have not yet been greatly affected or greatly impacted. And, and it seems as though uh, the information that we're getting is changing each and every day. And, and sometimes the, the impact of what's taking place around the world begins to get closer and closer as it begins to affect us personally. Some have lost work. Others have really not been affected at all. Some of us go on with life as normal, while others are concerned for their work, for their family, for their home, for their income, wondering where perhaps the next meal may actually come from. They're concerned for a loved one that may be infected or a co-worker, and they can't go even see them. They can't go sit by their side and even begin to console them. Let me ask you a question. Is your heart heavy for people? See, if we're going to demonstrate what it is to be children of God and carry His peace, we have to grieve and, and weep for lost people. Do you grieve? Yeah, we're commanded in Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. 
And we need to grieve and have a heavy heart for others that are in difficult situations. But here, Jesus is grieving. It says he looked at the city and he grieved for the people because they're lost and without hope. They've missed the greatest news of all. Here comes Jesus. The Messiah has come to save them, to give them life, to give them hope, to give them purpose, to give them peace. And they've missed it. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus was speaking to the crowd and he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, but I have come that they may have life and that they might have it abundantly. That word abundantly means a full and a meaningful life. And if we're going to be a great reflection of the Prince of Peace, as Jesus was coming, he looked at the city and he wept. He grieved over them because they were lost and without hope. And as we become that reflection of Jesus, we need to grieve and weep for people who are lost to have the compassion of Christ. My second observation, though, is this, that God always has a plan, and it's always better than mine. God always has a plan, and it's always better than mine. You see, the people didn't know what they didn't know. Uh, We live in an information society, and information is changing every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. The people there were unaware of all that God was doing around them to bring about his plan of salvation. And even now with the the days and the questions and the stuff that's going on in culture right now, sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. Uh, There's so much information swirling and, and we don't even realize how God is at work. But I think when we stop and, and just think about it for a moment and look at what God is doing, it's interesting to, to realize that God has a plan and he's fulfilling his plan. His plan is, is better than I could ever imagine. And he is doing things perhaps differently than I ever would have anticipated. You see, God always has a plan, even if you or I don't think he has a plan. When we look at verses 28 to 35 of the story in Luke chapter 19, it tells us that Jesus sent a couple of his disciples into town to retrieve a donkey and a colt that were tied up there. Now, I just find that fascinating to see that in the text and think, well, that's kind of strange. Why would he do that? So verse 30 and 31, it says, go into the village, as Jesus is telling his disciples, go into the village in front of you where uh, whereon you entering into that city will find a colt tied on which one no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31 says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Really? Why was he doing that? It seems somewhat strange. Well, first off, we have to realize that what Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling a plan. There was a prophecy in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament in chapter 9, verse 9, that simply says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, even in this moment, Jesus was fulfilling his plan. He had a plan, and he was fulfilling it. He was pursuing that plan. Why is this significant? Well, I believe because Jesus had an end game. 
Jesus had a plan. Jesus had a purpose that he pursued with endurance and pursued with tenacity. Jesus knew the end game. He knew the result. He knew what was coming ahead of him. And he had to do it in order with a purpose and with a plan to fulfill prophecy. That's exactly what he did. And he did it willingly. And, and even though it didn't seem like a great plan, Jesus was fulfilling his purpose. And when we look at our culture and we look at the questions and we look at the situations going on around us, sometimes it's hard to see what God's plan is and what his purpose is. But he told us earlier in this book, matter of fact, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said, I have come, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That was his plan. That was his end game. That was his purpose. He said, I'm doing all of this because I'm going to seek and to save the lost. And sometimes God allows things to happen as he is working to fulfill his plan and fulfill his purpose. Even if I don't think so, he's still working to seek and to save lost people. Just look around you. Look around our world. Look around our city. And see what God is doing in the hearts and lives of people. I heard a story just uh, yesterday uh, about a friend that went to a bookstore. The bookstore he always goes to. And he says every Bible on the shelf was gone. <laughs> they were all gone. People are looking for answers. They're looking for hope. And God is fulfilling a plan. In many ways, he's hitting the pause button on our life. And he's forcing us to, to stop. To, to reconsider our priorities, to reconsider our values, to rejoice in those ways that you see God working is simply identifying the fact that God has a plan, even if I don't think so. And He's always fulfilling His plan. He's always fulfilling His purpose. There are people who are seeking answers. They're seeking purpose. And we have the answer and the purpose of Jesus Christ. And this may even afford us an opportunity to have those conversations with people when they're looking for the answers. And they're saying, where is God in the midst of all this? And sometimes I don't really have a great answer for that, but I do know that he always has a plan. And his plan is always better than mine. And he's always in the process of seeking after lost people. My third observation when I look at this text in light of our current situation is, is this. We need to give him praise even when I may not feel like it. We need to give him praise even when I don't feel like it. See, there are times that I simply don't want to be thankful or give praise. It's just an honest moment of transparency with you. Like you, I have been in difficult circumstances. I've been in difficult situations. And, and i got to be honest, the last thing that's crossing my mind at that point in time is I just want to praise Jesus for this difficult situation. Well, God has taught me that even through my own situations, that I need to praise Him. Even when I may not feel like it, I still need to praise Him. See, we give thanks in circumstances, the situations that are going around us, and, and we thank Him for those things. But uh, what I've realized is that I can also praise Him with praise of adoration. Because adoration is, is not necessarily thanking God for my circumstances. Praising Him with adoration is simply praising Him for who He is. And so sometimes in life, when, when I, I don't necessarily like the situation around me, 
I can still praise Him for who He is. See, I've learned that I can always trust Him. I can always trust His nature. I can always trust His character because God is a faithful God. And I can praise Him for who He is. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation around me, I can always praise Him for His goodness. I can always praise Him regardless of the circumstances for His mercy. I can always praise Him for His righteousness. I can always praise Him for His love. I can always praise Him for His compassion. I can always praise Him for His grace that's been extended to me through the blood of Jesus Christ. Even if I'm not thankful for the situation going around me. Because things can be difficult, but that doesn't change the nature and character of God. And in all things, I need to praise Him. See, when we look at the world and we look at the situation going on around us, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but I realize that people are drawn to praise. They're drawn to praise, especially in dark and difficult times. Uh, all you have to do is jump on social media, look at the internet, and, and you're starting to see these viral videos of people who are just breaking out in chorus and song, or they're breaking out in dance, you know, to Footloose or something. And, and uh, these, these videos are going viral because people are looking for signs of hope as people just randomly begin to sing together, stepping outside on their balconies in Italy and just beginning to resonate a chorus of people singing. People are drawn to that because they're drawn to praise. And when you and I give praise to God in all things that Scripture commands us to do, we point people to the God of our praise. When we praise Him in all things, regardless of the situation being good or bad, we point people to the God of our praise. That's what was taking place as Jesus was entering the city. You see, He is the only one that can bring healing. He's the only one that can bring peace. He's the only one that can bring forgiveness. He's the only one that can bring joy to people in difficult times. So what do we do? We give Him praise and we point people to the God of our praise. We can't fix people. We can't fix situations. We can't fix the difficulty that people may be going through. We can support them, we can encourage them, we can help provide goods and means, we can provide encouraging words, but we can't fix that situation. But what we can do is we can demonstrate a life of praise, a life that resonates of, of gratitude from inside of us, and we begin to point them to the one that can fix them, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So here in the text, it tells us in verses 37 and 38 that the people began to sing and they began to, to give exclamations of praise as Jesus was moving into the city. And, and they quoted Psalm 118. And it tells us here, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 38 saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then I love verse 39. Because verse 39 says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Well, isn't it interesting? They're giving praise to God, and then there's those who go, hey, you need to stop doing that. And so the Pharisees tell Jesus, hey, you need to, you need to tell them to stop. 
But then I love this. I absolutely love verse 40. Jesus looks back at the Pharisees and he said, He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do you hear that? If you and I don't give praise, then we're going to be replaced with the stones. Don't be replaced by a rock, right? Give praise to Christ. Give praise to him in all things because the very nature is going to cry out and give praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites you and I to be a part of that process, to praise him and not to be replaced by the stones. So we need to give him praise, which then leads me to my fourth observation this morning. We need to realize that God invites me to be part of his plan. God invites me to be part of his plan. Just say it out loud. God invites me to be part of his plan. And I want to make that very personal because God invites me, but he invites you. See, he invites you and me into his plan. When we come to know him, he gives us a a whole new identity. He gives us a whole new purpose. And I need to do my part. I, I need to identify with God's plan and purpose for me and I need to do my part. Or, he says, or the rocks are going to do it, right? So just like he showed here by sending two of his disciples to retrieve the donkey, he didn't have to do that. Uh, There could have been another means, but he involved his disciples in his plan, in his work, in his mission. He invited them to come be a part of that. And so just as he told his disciples when he called them, The first disciples that are recorded in the Gospels when Jesus invited them in Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, when Jesus invited the disciples to come, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come and follow me. There's an invitation. Come and follow me. But then there's a description that says, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus said, I'm going to do something different in you. I'm going to invite you into my plan. I'm going to give you a new purpose for your life. God invites us to be part of his plan. And when Christ calls us, he calls us with a purpose. He invites us into his mission. You see, his desire is to transform our lives from sinfulness to usefulness. He wants to transform us from a life of sin to a life that is useful for the cause of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Scott has reminded us over and over here at Southbridge with this simple phrase. He said, spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. See, we simply believe that when God invites us to be part of his family, that he also invites us to be part of his mission. That he so wants to change us from the inside out that 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 transformation in us leads to gospel saturation. That every place that we go, in, in every dark place, in every difficult place, we step in with the hope and the peace of Jesus Christ. And that leads to gospel saturation, that the gospel that is transforming us is literally saturating our community because God invites us into his plan and into his purpose. Our lives need to be so radically transformed by the power of Christ in us that it drives us into the world around us. That's God's plan. You and I are God's plan. 
He could have come up with a lot of other ways, and, and sometimes I'm not really sure that that was the best plan, but it had to be because it was God's plan to invite you and me into the mission to send us out. So I want to close with a couple of questions just based on these observations to make it very personal for you and for me as we apply this text moving into our Easter week. First off, who is it that you need to grieve over or pray over that they would come to know Jesus Christ? You see, are there people in your life that you grieve and, and you weep for them because you want them to know the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ? Secondly, how do you need to recognize God's plan at work in you and around you? Do you need to just stop and, and just sort of pause and, and look at the things that are going around you and, and begin to honestly acknowledge how God is working? Because as he's working out his plan, it doesn't always make sense to us. But sometimes the best thing we can do is just to stop and acknowledge and recognize how God really is at work in the situations around us. As, as desperate as they may be, as dark and difficult as they may be, God is at work. And we need to be able to see that and we need to rejoice. And then we need to praise him, right? Who in your life needs to hear your praise? As you're giving praise to God for what he is doing in your life and around you and, and in the lives of others, as, as people hear you giving praise, you're going to point them to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, who needs to hear that? And how can you minister to them? So, then the question then is, what's your next step of obedience? As you think about your role and your walk with Jesus Christ, what, what is your next step of obedience as you seek to be part of God's plan and God's purpose? See, as you begin to answer those questions, you and I grow in our relationship with Christ. We begin to be activated into the process, not simply affiliated with the church, but truly activated into the mission to which God has called us. So just like our text, I believe that the same is true today when people encounter Jesus and, and as we interact with them. Some people get irritated, some get mad, some ridicule us, some reject us. But as his followers, we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful to praise him. We need to be faithful to give him glory while being sensitive to the needs of people around us. And you may have people that are in need and you need to figure a way to, to love them and to care for them and let us know how we can help as a church to do that, to help you minister the love and grace of Jesus Christ to friends, to family, to coworkers. How can we come alongside you and help you fulfill God's plan for your life? See, as children of God, we also realize that Jesus has won the victory. That's why this is a triumphal entry. He, he did what only he could do. And so we don't fight a battle for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus has won the battle on our behalf. And so we move victoriously. Jesus conquered death on our behalf. He conquered sin on our behalf. And we stand before him forgiven and victorious. But we need to repent. We need to come to know him. Perhaps this morning you've never come to that place of just acknowledging your sin before the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know this, just as we have said, God loves you and he cares for you. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
I want you to know more than anything this morning how much God loves you and cares for you. He came to demonstrate his love for you. That's what the Bible tells us, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to know you. We want to help you in that process. If you have a question, you can email us at info at sfchurch.com. You can call the number that's on the screen and, and talk to somebody. But we want to help you in that journey to come to know Jesus Christ personally and, and to grow in Him. See, the Bible tells us very simply that we are all sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I love the verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It simply says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you come to know him? If you never have, we want to invite you to do that. We can do that simply through a simple prayer, a confession, saying, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and the best way I know how, I give you complete control of my life and I invite you to come into my heart, forgive me and make me the person that you want me to be because God always transforms us from the inside out. So I invite you to surrender to him completely and invite him to come in and take control. Thank you for joining us this morning and as we wrap up our time, I just want to challenge you, if you're part of Southbridge, um, you can continue to give and, and uh, help us meet needs within our community. Uh, you can do that digitally, online. You can contact the office. We can help you do that. You can drop some, uh, a check or something by the office as well. But we also understand in these difficult times that uh, you may not be able to do that or you might be in a situation where you have a need. And we want to help you you know, in, in any way that we possibly can. And so we, we encourage you to reach out to us. Again, you can email us right there at info at sfchurch.com. If there's some way that we can pray for you, if there's a, a specific need that you may have that we may be able to come along as a church and, and either be an encouragement or get you some resources, uh, we would love to do that. But church family, be faithful during this time. Pray for one another, reach out to one another. Look for ways that God is working in and around you because God is always fulfilling his plan and he invites you and I to be part of that plan with him. God bless you and we thank you so much for being with us this morning.